Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Paper Review, where I review the Brand papers and be careful signs over the beacon place events and clients in their true context in the week. So much for fake news. And I'm going to Facebook start this week with the first port of call for young people for news over the likes of the BBC and ITV, despite being caught up in several fake news storms a report has revealed. Teenagers and young adults have failed to heed warnings about made-up content and invented stories and turned to the social media site ahead of traditional sources, communications watchdog Ofcom found. Among 16 to 24-year-olds, 52% said their top source for news would be Facebook, while 39% said BBC One and 30% said Twitter. After television, adults regard the internet as the top platform for news, with 64% going there first. 44% said they rated social media above other internet sources. This comes despite the fact that Facebook and Twitter are unregulated and not subject to the same robust standards as newspapers in the broadcast industry. Ofcom head Sharon White has previously said some Facebook users are forced to rely on gut instinct to tell fact from fiction. Ranking the top three news sources, Ofcom found that overall adults rated BBC One first, followed by ITV and Facebook. Despite this, many struggled to remember the original source of a story. Only 43% of those who read news on Facebook said they knew which media outlet had written the piece. The report read, this may be partly because social media sites display news content from a wide range of different sources and alongside other types of content making it harder to distinguish news from other kinds of content and to identify the original source. The news consumption in the UK report also revealed a gulf between young and old when it came to current affairs. Those over 65 were twice as likely as 16 to 24 year olds to say they use BBC One for news. In the younger bracket, 52% turned to Facebook to find out what's happening versus 12% of older people. The study also found that women were more likely to get their news from social media posts, 44% against 36% of men. Asked if they would be more likely to get their news from website or app, 37% of men said this was the case compared to 28% of women. With radio water so there was a big gap with over 65s flocking to Radio 2 or Radio 4, while 16 to 24s opted for Capital, Heart or Kiss. Asked about Radio 4, 37% of over 65s said they would tune in versus only 6% of 16 to 24s. On the flip side, 49% of the younger age group chose Radio 1, whereas only 7% of the older generation did so. Well, that would be because of the music that those stations play. Radio 4 is all talking as I understand it. For the study, Ofcom questioned respondents on how important social media sites were to them for a source of news. Asked about Facebook, 50% said it helped them understand what was going on in the world. For Twitter, the figure was 55%. The watchdog also spoke to children aged 12 to 15, but of those looking at news, only 16% said they had any interest in politics or current affairs. There's an interesting opinion piece here about these Silicon Valley companies, Google, Facebook and Twitter, in the Daily Mail. Google, Facebook and Twitter have rapidly become the Wild West online and it's endangering democracy. Social media giants such as Facebook, Google and Twitter have grown rapidly in the Wild West culture of the internet. Their mantra has been to move fast and break things as they deliver massive changes to the way we find, consume and even make news and entertainment. Yet in this process they are putting at risk one of the most important treasures of our society, our democracy itself. Well, democracy is just ruled by the majority. It's wrongly associated with freedom. What we call democracy has got us to the point we are, so it's certainly not going to solve the problem. Anyway, the article goes on. Over the past two years, we have become more aware of the phenomenon of fake news and the way it can spread its speed like a virus, infecting millions of viewers with its lies. The term itself has become open to abuse being used casually by people who don't like criticism or scrutiny to dismiss any news article or investigation they just happen not to agree with whatever the level of truth contained within it. What we are really talking about when we discuss fake news is the deliberate targeting of people with campaigns of disinformation designed to confuse and mislead and ultimately to influence actions. 
the House of Commons Select Committee for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport launched its inquiry into disinformation following investigations which showed that, thanks to social media and in particular Facebook with its 2 billion users, 2.5 billion last estimate I saw, these campaigns in many cases were reaching more people than the real news and such was the clever way the content was presented people found it hard to distinguish between the truth and the fake. During the last US presidential election, well, that's where research comes in. The article goes on. Fake news is bad at any time, but it has the potential to cause even more damage during election campaigns. Increasingly, people of all ages get their information from social media. Rather than reading a newspaper or website or listening to radio or television, they receive it in bite-sized pieces shared online, including through advertising. On Facebook, advertisers can target you through your newsfeed so that their messages are mixed in with those from your friends. You have no control over this and cannot block advertising from your Facebook newsfeed. Communications agencies are gathering vast quantities of data to build up profiles on millions of Facebook users so that they know exactly who to target and what the message needs to say to have the greatest impact. Some might say this is just advertising, but having a personalised message sent to your smartphone is very different to seeing a TV advert. Well, some of the data does go to advertising agencies, but the real source of that information in terms of where it's going to is the intelligence arena. The article goes on. Facebook gathers data about everything we do on their website and tracks us when we are elsewhere on the internet. Academics believe that an analysis of all the things you have liked on Facebook gives a more accurate prediction of your personality than you would get from your closest friend. And Facebook has failed to keep this data safe. Well, did it ever intend to? They have made it far too easy for political consultancy, such as the disgraced Cambridge Analytica, to scrape this data for their campaigns. These techniques of data profiling and targeting using Facebook advertising tools have also been used by agencies in Russia to target voters in elections in other nations, which is against the law. They directly targeted 150 million Americans with political average during the 2016 presidential election. Our inquiry has heard evidence of their attempts to interfere in the Brexit referendum using both Facebook and Twitter and in elections in Europe. In France in 2017, Facebook was asked to investigate suspicious activity on its site linked to the presidential election and ended up deleting 30,000 fake accounts. These Russian campaigns were run without Facebook spotting their activity. Users didn't spot them because there was no requirement for the advertisers to show their real identity. So an advert run from St. Petersburg could be made to look like a message from a community group where you live. The tech companies have made money out of the targeting techniques they've developed to help advertisers reach us. And these tools have been made available to bad actors and used to spread disinformation. That is why we have to act to safeguard our democracy. In our report, we say firms such as Facebook should have a legal obligation to act against known sources of content that can mislead and cause harm. There needs to be real transparency so we know who is targeting us and where they are doing it from. During election periods, political advertising should only be allowed by registered campaigns. In financial services, businesses contribute to the administration and consumer protection regulation. Similarly, the big tech firms should help the cost of the Information Commissioner's Office which is responsible for enforcing our... Similarly, the big tech firm should help the cost of the Information Commissioner's Office, which is responsible for enforcing our data protection laws. They should also contribute through a levy to fund more media literacy programs in schools, something they have started to do but can easily afford to support far more. Technology is changing the world fast. We must act now to keep up and protect democracy. Well, I've already said my thoughts on democracy, but technology certainly is changing the world fast. And I've gone into that and where it's designed to go in episode 11. The answer to fake news in one word, research. The answer in a sentence, people start taking responsibility by researching information they come across and taking nothing as read until they have. No censorship, no fake news inquiry, 
no regulation of the internet necessary. People accept nothing as true until they've checked it out for themselves. It doesn't matter then if fake news exists. Where it says in this article, this comes despite the fact that Facebook and Twitter are unregulated and not subject to the same robust standards as newspapers and broadcast industry. Well, when you're fundamentally connected to the intelligence arena, as I explained in episode 19 and the Pentagon, regulation means nothing anyway. Just like when Facebook was found guilty of gathering and sharing people's data and passing it on to advertisers and sources like Cambridge Analytica. Anyone think they're not still doing it? Of course they are, and it's not just advertisers that information is going to, it's going to where Facebook was set up to send that information in the first place. Among other reasons Facebook was set up, and that's the intelligence arena. I saw a meme online, and it basically summed it up. It's got Facebook logo, and it says basically that the intelligence agencies realised they didn't need to spy on you. Given the means, you were going to tell them everything yourself. And that's what social media is about. Data tracking and profiling. Also, it's about censorship. The fake news scam, along with the non-violent extremism scam, is not to target fake news. They want fake news. Fake news gives them the excuse to tar the genuine alternative news sources on the internet. Genuine as opposed to the mainstream media, that is. With the same brush as the fake news, so justifying censoring the genuine alternative media. We also need to keep our mind open, I would suggest, to the possibility that some of this fake news could be purposely communicated by those working for the intelligence arena, which social media is fundamentally connected to, in an effort to use that purposely communicated fake news for this very agenda. I'm not saying that's happening, but we should not rule it out as a possibility. Also on the subject of social media and internet giants, Google, Facebook and Twitter are using algorithms to suppress web pages, websites and information they don't want people to see. Algorithms that list web pages and websites much further down in search results in the case of Google, and algorithms that stop people seeing a post on Facebook or Twitter if it contains certain keywords or information. YouTube is demonetizing videos of people who depend on that income to continue making content communicating alternative information and work full time on the research and the video making. They're also just outright deleting channels. Silicon Valley now has the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen. And we've seen nothing yet. The alternative media is a spectrum. It's not like there's the mainstream media and then there's one alternative. It's a spectrum of opinion and perception ranging from that which is minutely different to the mainstream to people like me who are questioning everything you've ever been asked to believe. You know, people say you should question more, you should think more about what you're told. No, no, don't question more. Question everything. Because when you do, a very different panorama appears before you. There are those in the alternative media who come from a religious and patriotic perspective. And there are those like me who reject both of those and every pillar of the establishment in its entirety. Government and government organizations, the intelligence arena, media, defense, which is actually attack, education, law enforcement, the legal system, royalty, whole lot, everything. They all, they all have to go as they're currently constituted. Doesn't mean we don't need them at all. It just means that the overall direction and perception driving those areas of society has to go. Fake news, the phrase, came into widespread use around the time of the US election campaign in 2016. 
It was claimed that Clinton lost because of Russian hacking of the election because Trump was on the side of the Russians without ever presenting any evidence. And the idea that Clinton lost the election because of Russian hacking of the election because Trump was on the side of the Russians is... It was nothing to do with the corruption of Hillary Clinton, her actions in the State Department over many years, or the actions of her husband while in office. It had nothing to do with that, of course. That wasn't why she lost. It was Russia. Nothing to do with the fact that we're now seeing the rise of populism, as it's become known, where people have had enough of the traditional politics and want to change. This is why Trump got elected, because people believed, although I would say it's a misguided view, that Trump was different. He really would drain the swamp and he would make America great again. Populism was also making its mark in Europe. People are starting to see now that traditional politics is not going to change anything. The point is, though, that populism politics won't change anything either, ultimately. It's got to come from the people. You see, the irony is they use that as an excuse to come up with this whole fake news scam and by so doing they themselves were communicating fake news that's the irony of it russia cyber hacking russia influencing elections without ever presenting any evidence to back it up i mean the mainstream media is the home of fake news because some within it will know that's the case but most of the time journalists take statements from an official source and pass it on to the people and get well paid for it nice work if you can get it Whereas the genuine alternative media, that part of the alternative media which checks facts and holds authority to account, actually does the part that should go in between the statement and the communication of the statement, which is the research of what's said to see if it stands up. Because journalists, in vast majority of cases, don't do that, then the public get a certain perception of how things are which is what the authority wants them to believe and the mainstream media therefore is the home of fake news because most of the time that's what they communicate and when they actually tell the truth about a situation it's only covering that situation it's only covering that subject rather than understanding the true context of the situation and the connections between that story and this person, this organisation, this event, this story, this change in society, this agenda. They don't do that, they just cover subjects in and of themselves. And anybody who's been listening to pay-per-view for the last six months, around six months anyway at least, will know that. That's the whole point of me doing pay-per-view. So, there's a lot of fake news communicated by the mainstream media. Is there fake news communicated in the alternative media? Yes, of course there is. Loads of it. You know, there's a lot of rubbish on the internet, but there's also a lot of real journalism on the internet, which is far more journalism than the mainstream media ever does. It's a spectrum, and the idea behind the whole fake news scam is to take those examples of rubbish on the internet and through other sources different to the mainstream, although not really in the sense that they're both fake news, and use that to justify censoring the real journalism on the internet. That's what it's about. Next article today is about political correctness, a subject I've obviously focused on many times in pay-per-view, on many times during pay-per-view. This is in the Daily Mail. 
Terror police boost MP security after she is accused of racism by activists for condemning the grooming of girls by Asian sex gangs. This is the world we live in now, where someone who is exposing and condemning sexual abuse is accused of racism and receives threats. An MP has been given heightened security measures after receiving death threats for condemning the grooming of girls by Asian sex gangs, it was reported. Sarah Champion, Labour MP for Rotherham, was accused by activists of industrial-scale racism for highlighting the common ethnic heritage of those involved in the town's sexual abuse scandal. The former Shadow Minister for Women and Equality hit the headlines when she spoke out after 17 men from Asian backgrounds were convicted of, or admitted to, offences in a series of trials related to child sexual exploitation. So they've actually admitted it, or they've been convicted of it. But it's still racist to say that they are what they've been found guilty of being. She warned people were failing to tell the truth about child abuse because they were afraid of being called racist. She also said it was predominantly Pakistani men involved in such cases time and time again. Miss Champion followed up her comments with a column in the Sun headlined British Pakistani men are raping and exploiting white girls. It's time we phased up to it and it is. She added Britain has a problem with British Pakistani men raping and exploiting white girls. There, I said it. The Fiori forced Miss Champion to resign from the Shadow Cabinet and since then she has received dozens of death threats. She's received dozens of death threats for pointing out sexual abuse of girls. That's the world we live in now. It's wrong to do that. What she should have done is said nothing and let the abuse carry on. Because that's the right thing to do. That's the right pure and moral thing to do, isn't it? She's been heavily criticised by racial justice charity Just Yorkshire that speaks on behalf of the local Pakistani community, according to the Times. Its leader has accused the MP of industrial-scale racism and inciting and inviting hatred against minorities. She's not talking about minorities, she's talking about those within the Asian community that abuse girls. The charity published a report in March on the MP that was said to reflect an online survey whereby 165 people were asked to describe the impact on the local Pakistani community in Miss Champion's remarks. Co-authored by Nadine Murtuja, oh, so it wasn't biased then, the chairman and acting director of Just Yorkshire, it said that British Pakistanis felt scapegoated, dehumanised and potentially criminalised by her. Well, they're obviously missing the point then, aren't they? They're just not talking about them. This report led to death threats against Miss Champion, forcing Scotland Yard's counter-terrorism unit to increase her security risk level, the Times reported. She was also reportedly advised to accept extra protection. Well, if that was me, I'd say forget the protection. And I would say, I would talk about this abuse of Asian sex scans even more. Put it all over Twitter. Talk about it in interviews. Say it even more. Say it louder. That's the only way to deal with people trying to stop you saying something is to say it louder and say it more and go into more detail. And if they don't like it, then fuck them. That's the attitude we need. That's nothing else is going to do it. Miss Champion apologised to the Rotherham Pakistani community for any hurt or adverse reaction I inadvertently caused. There we go. There's the apology. I apologise for. Why? Why? Why are you apologising for exposing abuse of young girls? Why should someone apologise for doing that? I'm sorry. I was wrong. I talked about abuse. What I should have done is said nothing. But Miss Champion said that Just Yorkshire's findings were based on an extremely limited survey distributed through networks not made in any way clear in the report. Mr Matuja, a Labour supporter, denied that his charity was part of a plot against Miss Champion. 
However, Miss Champion's friends have claimed that hard-left Muslim opponents are trying to force her from office and ruin her reputation. Leading members of the town's Pakistan community allegedly want a Muslim member of Rotherham Council to replace the former Labour backbencher if she is deselected or gives up her seat. South Yorkshire Council's former deputy leader Jahangir Akhtar was reportedly labelled Miss Champion and Elgar in correspondence seen by the Times. He warned, if Labour wants to keep her seat, they need to get rid of her pretty quick. Momentum supporter Taiba Yassin is seeking a Westminster seat and is seen as a potential successor. She has previously criticised Miss Champion publicly for betraying an entire ethnic group. Well, she didn't do that at all. She was talking about people within the ethnic group, not everybody. Miss Yassin, 43, was dropped from the Rotherham cabinet in May for reasons the party has declined to reveal, but Miss Champion supporters claim it was prompted by concerns that she was trying to discredit the MP. Well, let's get the fucking facts straight for a start. Asian men are grooming white British girls. That's a fact. Some people don't like it being said, but it's a fact. The irony of all this is that those who complain about racism are those talking about these simple facts are those who are causing the very special treatment by the authorities for Asian and Muslim men because of people in authorities' fear of being called racist because the progressives in the PC brigade have created this fear by calling everyone racist whenever they state simple facts. This then creates friction and animosity towards those the progressives and PC brigade claim are being discriminated against. And it's that friction and animosity the progressives and PC brigade then complain about. They're allowing this abuse to go on by saying you're a racist for saying that, you're a racist for saying this. So what that then leads to is inaction and a lack of response from people in authority who are afraid of being called racist unless they do nothing about the abuse and the abuse goes on. That's the world the pure moral PC brigade and the progressives have created. And then they complain about animosity towards people in certain minority groups. Well, I wonder why, but they're too full of their own self-purity and too far at their own backside to be able to see it. Now, you would think that the progressives in the PC brigade would want to stand up for women and women's rights, but not when it's abuse of women within the same ethnic group or when it's being done to white British girls. This is the PC pyramid that I talk about in episodes 13 and 15. I also talk about why I say that political correctness is the ultimate discrimination. One question, by the way, just one. Where are you, me too? Your Hollywood names, you've got access to a wide audience to expose all this. Where are you when this is going, oh, sorry, yeah putting your black dresses on to go to an award show. Right, of course, yeah. If you were genuine, you'd be calling out this abuse of women by Asian and Muslim men. Not specifically Rotherham, but abuse of women by Asian and Muslim men. Instead of just being virtue signaling, headline grabbing, camera seeking, frauds. But I don't want to keep you. I don't want to waste your valuable time. Go to the film premiere. Get your photos taken in your black dresses. That'll solve everything. It's time to stand up and speak out, no matter what the race, culture or ethnicity of the person responsible for what needs speaking out about. We need to speak out about it, because if we don't, then we're allowing this rabble 
these progressives in the PC brigade to intimidate and frighten more people into submission to stay silent, even about abuse of women and children. We need to speak out while we still can. Next article today is about child abuse. This is in The Independent. Prince Charles feels deep personal regret at being deceived by paedophile bishop. Prince Charles has expressed his deep personal regret at having been deceived by a paedophile bishop. The Prince of Wales remained friends with Peter Ball for more than two decades, despite the clergyman having been cautioned for gross indecency. A statement from Charles was read to the Independent Inquiry into child sexual abuse on Friday as a five-day case study into how allegations against the former Church of England bishop were handled comes to a close. During his time in the clergy, Ball boasted of his links to royalty and was said to be a confidant of Charles. Ball, who is now 86, accepted a caution for one cat on gross indecency in 1993 and resigned due to ill health, but it was not until 22 years later that he finally admitted his crimes and was jailed for sexually abusing 18 young men over 30 years. Charles said Ball told him resignation as Bishop of Gloucester had been prompted by an indiscretion, but the Prince said, when this exchange took place, I did not know about the nature of the complaint. I'll have something to say about that in a minute. The article goes on. He also said in a six-page statement read by counsel to the inquiry fearing a scolding that he had not appreciated the meaning of a caution and that at the time the word of a bishop was generally seen as trustworthy. He had not appreciated the meaning of a caution. What? Charles said Ball had mentioned in a 2009 letter to him the word caution, but added, I was not aware until recently that caution in fact carries an acceptance of guilt. What? He said Ball had told him the false complaint against him had arisen from someone who had a grudge against him and was persecuting him. The prince said he did not realise the truth of what had happened until Ball's conviction, adding that his main source of information until then had been the bishop himself. He said in the 1980s and 1990s there was a presumption that people such as bishops could be taken at their word and as a result of the high office they held were worthy of trust and confidence. Charles said at the time there was on my part a presumption of good faith. Dismissing any suggestion he'd ever tried to interfere in the police investigation into board, Charles said it was possible his name had been taken in vain. He referred to a 2001 letter which he said conveyed to board that he could not help him in any approach that disgraced Bishop wanted to make to the Archbishop of Canterbury to return to public ministry. In his statement, Charles said, At no stage did I ever seek to influence the outcome of either of the police investigations into Peter Borton, nor did I instruct or encourage my staff to do so. Ending the statement dated 10th of July, he said, My heart goes out to the victims of abuse, and I applaud their courage as they rebuild their lives and so often offer invaluable support to others who have suffered. I don't believe that for a second. It remains a source of deep personal regret that I was one of many who were deceived over a long period of time about the true nature of Mr. Ball's activities. Don't believe that either. On Monday, the inquiry heard there had been lengthy discussions between Charles's lawyers and the inquiry in which his legal team initially argued that the future king could not be compelled to produce a statement. Clarence House has since said Charles was willing to help the inquiry and have voluntarily answered all questions asked of him. Extracts from a series of letters between Ball and Charles were also read to the inquiry at the hearing in London on Friday. In one letter in 1995, Charles wrote that he wished he could do more. He wrote, I feel so desperately strongly about the monstrous wrongs that have been done to you and the way you have been treated. Another letter from Charles in 1996 referred to the process of getting a duchy of Cornwall property for Ball and his brother Michael, Bishop of Truro. 
He said, I long to see you both settled somewhere that suits you and gives you peace and tranquility, and not too far from here so you can come over more easily. The pair rented a duchy property between 1997 and 2011. Richard Scorer, a specialist abuse lawyer at Slater and Gordon, who represents a number of born victims, told the Press Association Charles's explanation that he was not aware of the meaning of a caution left his clients dissatisfied. Yeah, because it's like, what, when you hear it? He said, Prince Charles had access to the best legal advice that money can buy, and as a man in his position, a particular responsibility to check the facts. It is difficult to see his failure to do so as anything other than willful blindness. His evidence, together with that of Lord Carey, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, and other establishment figures who have given evidence this week, will do little to dissuade survivors from the conclusion that the British establishment aided and protected Ball, and even now have failed to give a transparent account of their actions. The article goes on. Ball was released in February last year after serving half of his 32-month sentence behind bars. Former Bishop of Lewis and Gloucester is too old to give evidence in person the inquiry is heard. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? At some point, Prince Charles is going to have to be questioned himself in terms of his relationship with paedophiles. At some point, Prince Charles is going to have to be questioned himself in terms of his relationship with paedophiles. Jimmy Savile, a record-breaking paedophile necrophiliac in Britain, was very close in his own words to the British royal family for decades, particularly Prince Charles. Savile was invited into the royal family's inner circle in the 1960s by Lord Mountbatten, the mentor of Prince Charles and Prince Philip, and he was close to the royal family right in their inner circle for decades. When you get anywhere even close to the royal family with any regularity, you don't get there without intelligence networks doing a massive check on you and who you are, including criminal activity and informing the royal family if necessary. So given that, how did the Yorkshire police know what Savile was doing as they admit they did, but but security networks didn't have a clue. It's ludicrous to suggest that they didn't. Of course they did. Ted Heath was British Prime Minister from 1970 to 1974, the guy who signed Britain into the European Union, and there's been headlines in the mainstream media asking the question, was he the paedophile? And Savile was friends with Ted Heath. Heath is then replaced by Margaret Thatcher, whose government had names like Lord McAlpine, Leon Britton, Peter Morrison and others who have been identified as potential paedophiles. They've all long since passed, but their names have been in the media, along with Heath, saying were they paedophiles. These are names that have been mentioned as part of the farce of an inquiry into historical child abuse within Westminster and institutions in Britain. Westminster meaning within government for those in other countries. This inquiry, which was set up in the aftermath of the Jimmy Savile scandal, coming to public attention, finally after he died in 2011. He'd been protected by the British establishment until then. The inquiry was set up in 2015. This is the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. And, and there was a investigation called Operation Midland which was set up in 2014 to examine historical claims of a Westminster VIP paedophile ring, but it ended in 2016. The Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse now has its fourth chairperson because the previous three had to step down. It was announced in January of this year that this inquiry would not focus on Westminster paedophilia, but on the response of the institutions when allegations arose. This is the contempt the establishment has for victims of child abuse. Ted Heath was very close to Margaret Thatcher and our government was peopled by figures identified in the media as having been potential paedophiles because they've been named by people who say they're victims of paedophilia by those figures. Savile was also pictured outside a children's home called Hope de la Garenne on the island of Jersey, one of the Channel Islands between Britain and France. This children's home has been identified as a place where abuse is said to have taken place. 
This guy, Savile, was everywhere, and yet the royal family, despite special branch and other intelligence networks knowing everything about you if you're anywhere close to the royal family, never mind as close as Savile was, never knew Savile was a paedophile. It's the same with this bishop born now. Prince Charles said he didn't know, well he must have known, for the same reasons he must have known Savile was a paedophile. How did the two prime ministers he befriended, one of them linked to paedophilia, the other whose government had figures within it who have been since linked to paedophilia, not know who he was when the security afforded to the royals is also afforded, although maybe not to the same extent, to the Prime Minister for obvious reasons. Answer those questions which have the same answer and everything becomes clear. I've talked about child abuse within the establishment and also stealing of children by the state in episode 20. There's a massive rock to be lifted. People talk about leaving no stone unturned, but it's not a stone, it's a rock. And underneath this rock is the cesspit that has been hidden away from us. And when that rock's lifted, people will see the true mentality of those running our world. Not everybody, of course not. There's a lot of clueless and or manipulated, but otherwise nice enough people in positions of power and authority. I'm talking about that which runs human society. People will see its true mentality for the first time. Some people already know, but the vast majority don't. And then we can get much more of a grasp on why the world and society is... is. The next story today is on the continuing of the Hunger Games Society, although obviously they don't use that phrase. This is in the Daily Mail. Tens of thousands of people are working for high street brands while homeless because they can't afford a roof over their head, including an employee with a job at a Prada shop who sleeps on the streets. Set on London's exclusive Bond Street, the Prada boutique attracts a crowd of wealthy patrons spending thousands of pounds on designer clothes and handbags. Yet for the store security guard, Callum, this glamorous world lies in stark contrast to his life outside work. As the store shutters close, Callum has no home to return to and instead sleeps rough on the capital streets. Even more shockingly, his case is not unique. I was in Manchester just over six months ago and the number of homeless people I saw there was incredible. Channel 4's Dispatches programme to be aired on Monday night will reveal tens of thousands of people, some working for the nation's most recognisable high street brands are sleeping rough because they cannot afford a roof over their heads. When I was in Manchester, I was told by someone who lives there that some of the homeless people we saw have jobs, they do work, but they just can't afford a place to stay. That's exactly what this article says here. The article goes on. It is a sobering insight revealing the true social cost of the nation's low income wages, high rent costs and shortage of social housing. Callum is paid £8.50, just over the minimum wage, by security firm First Call, but divides his evenings between friends, sofas and homeless shelters. It's like I'm Superman, Callum tells the programme. By day I'm a security guard, at night I'm homeless. I never have enough sleep for the next day or feel refreshed enough to get up and go to work. Callum's attempts to apply for a council house were unsuccessful. Callum says, they said you were working so go privately, we can't help you. Smartly dressed Emma, not her real name, found herself on the streets in her 50s when her marriage broke down. But she fears losing her job as a teacher in adult education if her bosses discover she's homeless and washes every day in a local McDonald's. I keep on working because that is the only thing nobody can take away from me, she says. I've been asked to look for deposits that I can't actually make. I've been requested to pay about £2,000. Nobody keeps £2,000 on hand just like that. Meanwhile, university graduate Dayan has an MBA in his native Bulgaria and a job at high street restaurant chain Pizza Express, but slept rough for months before getting a place at shelter from the storm, London's only 365-day-a-year night shelter. You never anticipate to be in this situation, he said. Some people look at you, I can see they think homeless people are hopeless or they have problems. 
Sheila Scott, co-founder of Shelter from the Storm, told the programme that on average 30% of people they help will be in employment. A homeless person could be anybody, she says. It's the woman who looks after your granny, people working as teaching assistants in schools. The sums just don't add up. If you are on a minimum wage, it's almost impossible to find a place to live. Homeless Charity Shelter says 300,000 people are officially registered as homeless in this country, a figure which has increased by 13,000 in a year. But the true extent of the issue is thought to be much worse as this figure doesn't include those staying with friends or sofa surfing. Dispatches says many of those homeless are also on council waiting lists for social housing. Connie Cullen from Shelter said we are at crisis point. We really need social housing available to people on low income. Without that we are going to continue to see people who are in work or who are homeless. Heather Wheeler, the government's housing minister, refused to be interviewed by dispatches. A spokesperson for the department taught the programme. This government is investing over £1.2 billion to help and introduce the Homeless Reduction Act. Well, this is the Hunger Games Society I talk about in episode 4 and I've talked about since pay-per-view began and people still say that it's not happening. Well, listen to episode 4. Read this article I've just read and another one I'm going to read in a minute. It's happening. It's been long, long planned. People say all the system of welfare or the system of helping people who are homeless and making sure people have enough to live on, etc. The system's broken or the system doesn't work properly. Well, what about if the system is working properly? The system is working properly and we're seeing the effects of it working properly because that's what the system is there to do. I've talked about the money scam before on pay-per-view. The system of money itself is a means of creating debt and problems for people from the very point of interacting with it. I talk about it in episode 5. There's another article here on the same kind of subject. This is in The Guardian. Household debt in UK worse than any time on record. British households spent around £900 more on average than they received in income during 2017, pushing their finances into deficit for the first time since the credit boom in the 1980s. The Office for National Statistics said the shortfall amounted to nearly £25 billion, equal to almost a quarter of the NHS budget, and the overspend was mostly paid for with borrowed money, though households also ran down savings. The figures pose a challenge to the government, which was warned last year that Britain's consumer credit bubble of more than £200 billion was unsustainable. A dramatic rise in debt fueled spending since 2016 has also taken place against the backdrop of the Brexit vote, which triggered a rise in inflation at a time of weak wage growth. Well, as I've said before, there may be certain natural economic consequences because of Brexit, but there's also the establishment and the who didn't want Brexit who can manipulate easily when you own the global banking system and the global economic system. Economic problems into place to make people think again about Brexit because those consequences can then be pointed to by people who are in favour of Remain or people who don't have any side but just want the best for the country saying maybe Brexit was a bad idea because of these situations but they won't have any idea that they've been manipulated into place. The article goes on. Analysts warn that a squeeze on household incomes from benefit cuts, lacklustre wages and high inflation will continue to force poorer households to borrow more to pay basic bills. Tom Selby, a research analyst at financial advisor A.J. Bell, said the figures presented ministers with a significant challenge as they sought to build financial resilience in the UK. Researchers at the ONS said the situation was worse than at any time on record after the £25 billion deficit last year surpassed the £300 million deficit recorded in 1988. British household finances also slumped from being among the most solvent in the 1990s to being among the most indebted compared with households in other major Western countries. The report, titled Making Ends Meet, Are Households Living Beyond Their Means? 
found that the deficit among UK households equivalent to 1.2% of gross domestic product contrasted with a surplus in France equivalent to 2.7% of gross domestic products and a surplus equivalent to 5.1% in Germany. Last year, official data showed unsecured credit, such as credit cards and payday loans, climbed to a record high of more than £205 billion, while the consultancy PwC said its own measures showed consumer debts rising above £300 billion. The ONS said households took out nearly £80 billion in loans in 2017, the most in a decade, but they deposited just £37 billion for UK banks, the least since 2011. Households accumulated more debt than they acquired in assets even when their investments in bonds, shares and pensions were included. Anti-poverty charities warned that millions of low-income households were the worst affected. Step Change, which provides advice for indebted households, said the poorest were in constant need of credit to keep their heads above water. The charity's chief executive, Phil Andrew, criticised the ONS for saying households were living beyond their means, which he said implied they could cut back if they wanted to. He says, it's really unfortunate that this very useful data is so heavily sprinkled with the phrase that households are living beyond their means. The reality is that too many households here in Britain in 2018 simply cannot make ends meet however hard they try. Not having enough money to make ends meet is not the same thing as living beyond your means, which implies you have a choice when too many people do not. According to ONS figures, the poorest 10% of households spent two and a half times their disposable income on average in the financial year ending 2017, while the richest 10% spent less than half of their available income during the same period. The ONS said a rise in interest rates expected to be pushed through by the Bank of England next week could encourage greater saving and an improvement in household finances. But H.O. Bell Selby said for people having to borrow to make ends meet, saving for the future might feel like a luxury they simply cannot afford. Well, again, this is the Hunger Games Society, but it's also, as I've talked about before, a stepping stone towards the agenda of people no longer living in homes as we know them now. They want an end to home ownership, they want an end to houses, they want an end to ownership of any kind. They want people living in high-rise, narrow living space, in like tiny flats, which they rent, they don't own. If they don't keep authority happy, then they don't have the right to stay there anymore because they don't actually own the flat, they'll just rent it. And they want people living in human settlement zones. Of course, I've talked about that on pay-per-view many times. This is the connection between this and this smart technology transhumanist agenda. So we've seen nothing yet when it comes to poverty because the idea is as i've said before for everybody in the world to be in poverty and only given access to credit electronic money so if you don't keep authority happy well then you're stuck basically it's about control what's the main method of control and the most widespread money so if you control money you control people and that's what it's about and the human settlement zone you live in in the mega region mega city you live in countries are designed to be broken up into regions as i've said before mega regions mega cities to make them easier to control from a central point for the world government unelected bureaucrats to have an easier time controlling rather than all these cities as we have now if you can break the country up into mega cities it makes it easier where you live what mega region mega city you live in will decide what job you do so if you live in this mega city that specializes in that particular area so you'll do that job that mega region specializes in this so people living there will do that job and that will be the same for every country and if you don't do it uh, most of the jobs will be if not all of them will be corporations because the idea is corporations take over everything this is orwell's ministries from 1984 giant corporations controlling everything and who will own these giant corporations? Who owns some of the massive corporations now? The elite, ultimately. 
So if you don't do your job, if you don't like it, or if you say I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that job, then no money, no access to food, no access to water, because the idea is everything in your tiny, narrow, flat will be connected to the internet through the internet of things, as it's called. So they can see whether you've taken something out of your fridge or what you've put into your fridge. So it's all about control. This is where we're going. Not too long from now, either. that's the context and connections you don't get in the newspapers. Why? Because the journalists writing the articles don't know. Not that it would be able to get into the papers anyway, even if they did know about it. And that's why I do pay-per-view. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.